Today we've got uh, Etenna Jensen, um, who is from the Department of History at the University of Copenhagen. She just finished her, her PhD there, and she's with us here as a postdoc for, for six months. And interestingly, the Department of History has the first professorship, the first chair in the history of obesity anywhere that I, I know about. <coughs> Tenna knows a lot about pigs. Um, and what happens to them. Yes. And of course, pigs are very important in Denmark, but she'll talk about all the pigs, I hope. I will. Yeah, so trends in food consumption and what this might mean in terms of shaping Danish bodies um, between 1900 and the year 2000. Tina. Thank you very much. Uh, so yes, so I'm here to talk to you today uh, about two perspectives on longitudinal uh, trends in food consumption in Denmark between 1900 and 2000. So this means that I won't speak to you directly about obesity as such, uh, but rather about ways in which to investigate food and its consumption historically, and, uh, and why this is important to uh, research in obesity. Good. As most of the people that are alive today uh, in Denmark and in many Western nations uh, were born in the course of the 20th century, investigations into what they ate uh, when they were growing up was of immense importance for a fuller understanding of why their bodies look the way that they do today. So before I present you with the results of my research, uh, which is taken from my PhD dissertation, um, um, I'll just say a few words about how my historical studies are related to the large mass of interdisciplinary research about obesity. Um, and I'll also talk a little about why I prefer to see my studies more as being part of research in body weight in general uh, than as being part of research strictly on obesity. Today, as you know, a lot of scholarly attention is given to uh, obesity. We're sitting in a seminar row that relates to obesity. Um, and obesity studies are carried out in many different academic settings and environments. So this means that research is interdisciplinary and diversified. Two of the aspects uh, that attract a lot of attention right now is firstly the prevalence of obesity today and whether or not it can be labeled an epidemic. This is a particularly interesting debate uh, in the Scandinavian countries where both the rise and the rates of obesity are considerably lower than in the US and the UK. But I will return to the obesity rates in Denmark in just a second. Secondly, um, the causes of obesity or the drivers of obesity is a subject of much debate. Each discipline has its own perspective on the primary causes uh, of obesity and how the perspective on it should be. My area of research, the food, uh, more specifically the historical food consumption, can be labeled as driver of obesity and is often being labeled as one. It is also a driver that receives differing amounts of attention and is uh, seen as more or less important depending on the researchers researching the obesity. 
In the social sciences, uh, a lot of focus is given to the importance of social and cultural structures and how they help to determine the food choices and the practices of individuals and of groups. Nutritionists often focus on the food itself and how the intake of certain foods and food combinations and how they infect, uh, affect the human body and the physiology um, of the person eating the foods. In medicine, the most recent trend is to ignore food. Food is more or less left out and attention is now given to the genes, the obesity genes, of which there are now, I don't know, I haven't seen the last count, but the last I heard of it was more than 50, at least. Um, or to the intestinal flora, that's also a very up-and-coming topic, obesity right now. Historians are, of course, also taking part in exploring obesity as a historical phenomenon, as then just said. Uh, we have a professor in it at the University of Copenhagen. Um, many of the historical studies of obesity focus on the popular and the medical uh, representations of the human body and its physical appearance and how it's supposed to be, uh, how it is presented, and what it is not in the popular and the medical literature. My research is on food, historically speaking, and that's somewhat different than the majority of the historical studies on obesity. And this is why that I prefer to see uh, my research more as research into the preconditions of the human body as such. In my research, um, I focus on identifying changes. I don't focus on identifying the reasons for those changes. Um, so what I will show you today, later on, are the, the course of developments. Uh, I do not intend to try to explain them. <clears throat> the reason that I insist on calling my research as, as uh, part of researching body weight um, becomes more clear when you see this graph. This graph, I don't know if any of you have seen it before, this is a very famous graph. Uh, and in Denmark we're very proud that we're able to make these kinds of graphs. Um, this shows the prevalence of overweight, not obesity, in Danish school boys born between 1930 and 1983. Uh, and this is done by year of measurement. So this is how old they are. Each line is uh, an age, eight. And this shows how many of 1,000 boys were considered to be overweight by today's standards uh, throughout the 20th century. What I find interesting about this graph is actually not that it shows a prevalence of overweight. Because if you, as you can see, the prevalence of overweight is actually not that impressive. At the baseline uh, in the 1930s, it was less than 20 out of 1,000 boys that could be labeled overweight. And even as we approach the end of the 20th century, uh, the prevalence is less than 100 out of 1,000. If you look at that historically, it's like look, you're looking for an ant in, uh, in an ant farm. Um, it doesn't make much sense to talk about 
obesity as a phenomenon, uh, much less to explore the causes of it. It's just, uh, well, it seems a bit futile if you ask me. But what it does show, and this is what is interesting, it does show that something did happen to the, to the body weights of the Danes in the 20th century. It did evolve in ways, and it did rise. The question is more, what did it rise from, and what did it rise to, and was it a sign of good health that less than 20 boys were overweight in 1935? This graph cannot answer this, unfortunately. In this data set, which I would very much prefer that they would include in these graphs, are also the data for the underweight and the normal weight, uh, boys and girls, uh, from the same time period. I hope that they will make those graphs sometime soon, because that would uh, show us whether or not the baseline is something to strive at, or if it's really, it's, or if it just shows us that health was not as good as it is today. But unfortunately, for, for various reasons, no one has done this yet. So for that reason, um, I find that my research can contribute to the knowledge of how did the bodies, why did they change like this? What happened throughout the 20th century? Why did we become fatter uh, over time? So my plan for the rest of the seminar today uh, is to present you with two of the three perspectives on food consumption I've been working on. Um, First, I will present some of my results on development of social and geographical differences and changes in food consumption in Denmark from 1909 to 1999. Um, and then afterwards, I will present, well, that sort of leads me to the next one, which is a presentation of how historical studies of individual foodstuff and the development of their quality uh, can be of importance to the ways that we understand how food influences body over time. And then finally, I've made a little room for questions and debate. <clears throat> so, if we just jump first to the developments and social geographical patterns of consumption, um, I have chosen to focus on the two most energy dense uh, food groups today. Uh, as I believe that even small changes have presumably have a larger effect than the larger changes of some of the other food groups. So this means that I've brought graphs for you today regarding the sugar and sweet consumption and the consumption of fats. Uh, the research that I present here uh, is based on household budget surveys. In Denmark we have a very consistent uh, system of household budget surveys. Uh, the first one was carried out in 1897, and then they've been carried out with regular intervals throughout the 20th century by the same institution. Uh, this does not mean that the surveys haven't changed, because they have, uh, but still it is a consistent uh, historical source that uh, contains many, many, many fascinating uh, information on the development of consumer society in Denmark in the 20th century. Um, I focus on the years 1909, 1956, and 1999. 
And I do this for various reasons. Uh, one is that you have to recalculate each uh, number and each result because in order to make them historically coherent, you have to create uh, ideal consumers. Uh, and that is what I have been doing, and I will show you this. These are unfortunately in Danish, but I will translate them. They're all very similar. Um, <clears throat> this first one shows uh, yes, the percent of total food expenditure spent by the most and the least prosperous urban and rural workers on sugar and sweets in 1909, 1956, and 1999. And I think I'm going to need to later on. Because we have sweets, <clears throat> sugar, and the abbreviations down here, this is the most prosperous workers in Copenhagen, that is the most prosperous urban workers, the least prosperous. And then we move on to the rural ones, so that is the most prosperous and the least prosperous on the countryside. 1909-1956, and then unfortunately in 1999, uh, Statistics Denmark, uh, which carries out these, uh, has uh, locked some of the information and you can order it to be divided geographically, but uh, it's not its default setting anymore, and that's a shame. So that means that this is just the most prosperous workers and the least prosperous workers in 1999. I'm only talking about the workers uh, because in the beginning of these uh, surveys, only workers were included. That changed throughout the century and from the 1970s. Uh, also, the unemployed and the retired became part of these investigations, but I have removed them in order to make these uh, comparable all the time. Yes, of course. What's, what's your definition of sweets? sweets? Sweets. That is, unfortunately, a very loose definition okay. <laughs> because uh, it changes over time, and and it's not. You can perhaps find out precisely which. Foods are put into that, but it's not it's not consistently defined. So anything with a high content of sugar that the household considers to be sweets, and all the dry fruits and all the things are left out. They have a group of their own, so so they're not included in it. So, well, what this uh, graph shows is a very interesting development in. Uh, the consumption of sugar over the century. <clears throat> well, what we can see is, uh, and this is uh, not surprisingly, um, at the beginning of the century, sugar took up quite a large percentage of the total food expenditure. This is uh, considered to be normal. In, uh, in economies and households where, where money is, uh, is fewer. Uh, sweets in this end of the century is mainly chocolates. Then when we move on to 1956, uh, something has happened to the sugar prices uh, and the income, the relative income has risen, which means that the sugar uh, takes up a smaller part of the total expenditure. The most fascinating difference here is the difference between the rural workers and the urban workers. It's very clear that the rural workers spent more of their money on sugar and sweets than they did in Copenhagen. 
And then, of course, something completely different happens here, where the pure sugar is takes up less space, but sweets as such take up a quite impressive uh, percentage of the total expenditure uh, on food. It's not possible, unfortunately, because it's a very it's a fussy group, the sweets group. You cannot translate that into or into amounts, but you can do that with the sugar, with the pure sugar. So this graph, instead of showing a percentage of expenditure, shows you how many kilos of sugar uh, was bought in a household in a year uh, in Denmark in 1909, 1956, and 1999. It's possible to calculate these amounts because we have the retail prices uh, for each year and uh, they're also geographically divided, uh, so they, uh, they what, what's it called, they're even, uh, well, there's one price in Copenhagen, there's one price in the countryside, and I can calculate the, the different prices to make the estimates more correct. So, what do we see? Well, what I find is fascinating is that the difference in expenditure in 1956 also uh, shows that there was considerable differences in the amounts of sugar bought by the people living in Copenhagen and the people living on the countryside. We know today, uh, there are unfortunately no consistent uh, analysis done of this, but we know that throughout the latter part of the 20th century, the Danes, the rural Danes, have had an absolutely higher body weight than the urban Danes, and still do today. So that is an interesting information, uh, if one's interested in body weight. One other thing that, that this sugar and sweet development shows, well actually it was the previous graph that showed it, is that the quality of the sugar that is eaten has changed as well. The move from pure sugar to sweets has meant a move in processing uh, in refinement of the sugar itself. Actually, it's not the only qualitative change that has happened to sugar in the 20th century. What is not visible anywhere in these graphs is that the sugar eaten around here in 1909 was primarily the brown sugar, the less refined sugar, uh, because it was cheaper. So over the time, over the course of the 20th century, at least two major changes in the quality of the sugar eaten uh, did occur. That's interesting as well. So the next slide here then shows um, the percentage of total food expenditure spent on fats by the exact same groups of people uh, in the same years, surprisingly enough. And this one shows what the sugar and sweet graph showed as well that food consumption in Denmark as an economic size has changed completely. Uh, in households where fats take up between 15 and 20% of the total food expenditure, there isn't room for anything else really. Uh, you have to have some, some bread and some meat as well, and then that's sort of it. So this, this graph very, very clearly shows that buying food was a different and a little more serious business in 1909 than it was in 1999. 
we have here, we have the olive oil, we have the fat, that is the animal fat, uh, pork mainly. Then we have the margarine, and we have the butter, that's the blue one. And this is a very interesting thing as well, because this shows that if you had the money, if you were prosperous, you started buying butter before you could actually afford it. Uh, if you did not have as much money, you were forced to spend more money on margarine, and in 1909 this was not necessarily a pleasant uh, food. <laughs> and you see the same movement is actually still uh, persistent in 1956. And then when you come to 1999, so much has happened with relative food prices that it's, uh, well, the pattern, it changes, it's unclear. Um, that's what happens sometimes in the 20th century. It's also possible to translate all of these into border rounds. Uh, and this is where it gets interesting. Because as you see, here we have the more wealthy workers buying butter, buying butter, not buying so much butter. In the 1950s, you have a very, very interesting distribution. In 1956, actually, the difference between the most prosperous urban workers and rural workers were 15 kilos of margarine. And why is this interesting? This is interesting for one reason, or well, not one reason, but you can translate this into calories. And this shows you how many calories uh, the ideal consumers got from, respectively, butter and fats. And this sort of just makes it very clear what I'm trying to say. The most prosperous workers in 1956 obtained roughly less, less than half of their fat calories from margarine. The poorest rural workers obtained almost all of their fat calories from margarine. If we then move on, and this is where we're moving into my next perspective, the qualitative one. Um, this table shows the composition of Danish margarine uh, between 1905 and 1965. This is drawn from uh, the industrial uh, reports. They had to report the, the products that they used in margarine production up until 1965. After 1965, I would guess that the margarine industry somehow persuaded someone into saying this was no longer necessary because they ceased to exist. But what this shows is very, very interesting when you consider the poor rural workers from the previous slide. This shows, for one, that the margarine has changed throughout the century. These up here are the animal fats used in the original margarine, one that was invented in 1886, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's very clear that in the beginning of the 20th century, Margarine was predominantly an animal product. That changed. If you look at the change from 1908 to 1916, you see that the total is much lower. It was, it went, the animal fats went from being more than 60% of the raw products in the margarine production to, to being less than 10%. Instead, the coconut oil uh, went in and took over and became margarine uh, as such. 
But back to the poor world workers. If you look at the hardened oil, at the beginning there was none. Uh, all of a sudden, it, uh, it rose. Between 1924 and 1934, this exploded. The numbers from 1954 is unfortunately not to be relied on because the categories change. So you just need to focus on this development here, and you have it down here as well in the vegetable, hot vegetable oil here. Um, these oils went in and took over, and over time it appears that the, the hardened oil, the industrial produced trans fatty acids, uh, became more important for the mining industry, which is also why they don't, uh, they don't put them in there anymore. Um, so if you look at this, then the raw workers in Denmark ate a whole lot more industrially produced trans fatty acids than the urban workers. Uh, today it's not possible to relate this directly to the differences in body weight. Uh, what is interesting, however, is this. This is the male mortality from cardiovascular diseases in the Nordic countries from 1951 to 2004. Uh, this one is just nationwide. We have Denmark. Well, they do the same with all of them. Uh, if you correlate that with the consumption of margarine in total in Denmark, these match. Um, so that is an interesting development. It would be very interesting if someone could make these into uh, geographically divided, as we have such big differences in the consumption of margarine, that would be an obvious way to see whether or not the trans fatty acids are as dangerous as uh, as people say they are. In Denmark, we're convinced that they're dangerous, so we banned them in 2003. So in Denmark, you cannot put more than 2% uh, of the fatty acids in any food. Uh, they cannot be uh, industrially produced. And this is why this is why these are made, actually, to show that uh, it continues to grow. Well, actually, Actually, the doctors were sort of disappointed because it showed that well, this has dropped for a long time, even before they banned them. But <clears throat> well, so that was the case of margarine, which uh, which has showed how important it is to know something about the quality of the food. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about. Uh, the quality of Danish pork in the 20th century and how it has developed and why it's important to know uh, something about the complicated foodstuffs as well. Margarine, that's easy. We have the industrial information lined up for us. Uh, pork is somewhat more complicated. It's an animal. Animal eats, they move, they're bred, they're reared. Um, it's a complicated size. But in the case of Denmark, it's sort of an interesting food to know something about, because this graph shows you the development, the amount of meat available per person per year in Denmark from 1900 to 2000. This is interesting. It went from around 60 kilos in 1900 to 116 kilos per person in Denmark in 2000. And what did that? It was pork. We here have uh, the beef, the pork, 
the horse, the sheep, the poultry, that goes as well, and uh, everything else. But what's important here is the rise in pork per day. Whoops. That one pretty forward as well. Do you want to go back? No, it's okay. I just have to be with this today. They're nice looking pigs. They are very nice looking pigs. Uh, there are various ways uh, in which one can investigate the changes of Danish pork historically. One is to look at them. This uh, is the imaginations of the ideal Danish pig around 1900. This is the ideal Danish pig around 1900. It did not exist. Uh, the pigs look like that, or like that, or like that, or like, like something else, but not like the sausage pig that we have here. This is what a Danish pig like looked like in 2010. So they did it. Uh, and they did it a long time before 2010, actually. They managed, the Danish uh, pig production managed to change the pig dramatically uh, in the course of 20 years. Uh, and they have then developed it further and further up through the century. Uh, this has resulted in extra ribs, uh, smaller legs, smaller heads. The entire body of the pig has changed. Why is this important to the quality of pork? Well, it's important because it has changed the cuts. The cuts have become bigger. If you bought uh, a loin in 1935, no, it would weigh 80 grams less than it did in 1958. So this is something to remember when look at, at what when people describe what they ate. Uh, the sizes differed over time. The pigs got younger uh, over the century as well. This meant something to the quality of the meat. It got lighter. Uh, it got less chewy. So, so the feel of the meat changed as well. And the look of it, the taste, they've made uh, some interesting investigations of, uh, of old traditional pigs and what meat tastes like and the newer ones and it shows considerable differences. The pigs move less. They're not built to move anymore. Uh, around 1900 pigs could move. They were actually supposed to move. It was uh, the industry believed it was healthy for the pigs to move around so that they could gain muscle and become strong and not die too early because that cost a lot of money. Um, in the 1950s that ideology was gone uh, and it was before the animal welfare sort of uh, made a point. So the pigs were packed and actually in, I have many guidelines for pig rearing that says if you just pack them tight they don't have to lie down, they don't have to be able to move, they only live six months anyways, why bother? Um, that changed again uh, in the time from the 50s to the 1990s, where some began to question uh, the production of modern pigs. So this resulted in some guidelines that the pig farmers now have to follow. What's interesting about these guidelines is that they're still a lot stricter. I mean, the pigs have less space now than they did in the 1950s, where they were packed as tight 
as anyone could imagine that pigs could be packed. So this has meant also some, some changes to the structure of the muscles uh, in the meat. They, they have a different fiber structure now. And this means that they, they take in water uh, differently. And some of you might have experienced that today's meat is, is very watery. It is the changes in the muscle fibers of the pig that does that. Uh, and the industry has done this uh, deliberately because it, uh, it has enabled them to make the pigs grow fast uh, if you fill the muscles with water. So it's not pumping, it just naturally eats it. So that was one way of looking at the positive changes uh, of pork. Another is to look at the nutritional composition of Danish pork. This is the example of smoked ham. Smoked ham is, although it changed as well, all the time a nice, consistent cut. Um, it came from the same part of the pig throughout the century. This shows that the content of protein, these numbers are a bit, they're from very different, you see 1888, 1914, 1953, 1996. The old ones are based on, this is based on German pork, this is based on a mixture of German, American and Danish pork. Uh, that's the way nutritional tables work from this uh, point in time. But what it shows is that the content of protein in the smoke can has risen considerably over the century. The fat, however, has decreased dramatically, um, and you can see this uh, in the Danish pig production uh, institutes and, and research uh, as well. Uh, there are also hits that the contents of water has risen, just as I told you, because the muscle structure has changed. So this means that the same cut of meat had a very different content of energy, uh, dependent on when in the century it was eaten. And this is, of course, very important when, if one wishes to evaluate the influence of food on the human body, then you have to consider that food is just not, not just food. The most uh, sort of experimental uh, research I did on the quality of pork was an investigation of the feeding of the pigs. Um, and I did that in order to see how close could I get to the changes of the foods over time. So I went uh, straight for the fatty acid composition of the meat. And I did that because pigs accept a lot of the fatty acids they're eaten. You can trace them directly in their tissue uh, to a higher degree than, than, than cows, for instance. So it's possible to change uh, the fatty acid composition of pigs completely uh, by feeding them specific foods. And there are many interesting experiments done on that today. Um, I found some very detailed information, and I won't bore you with that, uh, but sort of the major findings uh, is that it's most likely that the fatty acid composition of Danish pork has changed quite considerably over time as well. Around 1900, uh, the diversity in feed was big, and not all pigs were reared the same way. Uh, some were left outside to roam, uh, the fields, uh, some were kept indoors, uh, some were raised on big farms, some on small. Uh, all of the export pigs 
we know at least, were fed milk and large quantities of milk because uh, the pig production in Denmark was actually kick-started by the butter production, uh, which meant that there was a lot of waste and it had to go somewhere and it went into the pigs. So the Danish pigs were all fed milk products in considerable amounts, much more than we give them today. Uh, in 1950s, uh, the diversity in feed had diminished. Most pigs were now reared in industrial farms, not as big as today, but considerably bigger than around 1900. They were no longer fed milk. Milk was considered old-fashioned. No pigs would eat that. Um, it had, their industry had actually managed in making skimmed milk a thing that humans could drink at this point and that made it unnecessary to feed it to the pigs, you could earn, earn money on it instead. So this means that uh, it became interesting to finding alternative protein sources to feed to the pigs. One of the most fascinating was fish, and that resulted in all pork tasting like fish. <laughs> so, so they stopped those. Um, in the 1990s, uh, the pigs were fed there are programs made out now uh, to calculate precise amounts of calories and energies and nutrients that pigs get. But this is a very uh, interesting system in, on its own. Um, but they're mostly fed grain and soy as protein. So this means that their protein source has changed over time from milk to something, something, something uh, into soy. And this change alone, along with the other changes in the feed, uh, will inevitably have changed uh, the failure as a composition of uh, the pork. So, just to recap a little bit of the relevance of the kind of historical investigations in food consumption uh, that I've done and uh, the relevance to the knowledge on the development of body weight my investigations of the social and the geographical patterns of food consumption, uh, they provide an insight into how the segments of the population uh, had different preconditions uh, over time to develop their bodies, to become underweight, to become overweight. Um, and the quantitative studies uh, of the development of foodstuffs and the products themselves shows that it's also important to know something about when the food was eaten uh, and what was actually eaten in order to evaluate how it has influenced uh, the human body because it's not, you cannot assume that it influences it in the same way uh, as it does today. So in my mind, uh, historical analysis of this kind uh, contributed to valuable perspectives and information and helps to create a more complete understanding of why the Danish bodies of the present uh, look the way they do.